All right, students. Today we're going to talk about Purgatory Cantos 1 through 6, and we're going to start with the figure, potentially, of the divine, Cato, Cato of Utica. And so a couple of things about Cato that we need to know. And this is taken from a very useful site called Dante Worlds, which is one you might want to consider going to. You don't need to write this quite yet. A stern, father-like figure, Cato of Utica, was a Roman military leader and statesman. Dante describes Cato as having a long, grizzled beard and graying hair falling down over his chest and two tresses. Tresses are those sort of braidy-looking, wavy uh, things that can hang down from your face uh, and get in your face all day. Um, his face is illuminated by starlight, as if he were facing the sun. As the warden or guardian of the mountain of purgatory, Cato performs a role somewhat similar to that of Minos in hell. The actual quote there is of Charon, but I think that's actually incorrect. Um, all right, so let's get some ideas about Cato. And this we will write. Served under Pompey the Great in the great Pharsalia-like Roman civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompeius Magnus, Pompey. Well, as you all know, because of your knowledge of history, who obviously won that war? Caesar, because we know about Caesar. We even have a month of our year named for Julius Caesar, July, and his adopted son, August, which is why our months are sort of off, right? Because we have like, what, September 7th month, 9th month, October 10th, 8th month, 10th month, November 11th month, 9th month, or excuse me, 9th month, but it's actually our 11th month, and then of course December, which is our 12th month, but it's supposed to be our 10th month. So, you know, like with so many things, it's an amalgamation. All right. Something interesting to note about this Cato that might cause us some consternation. And there's just something about each one of these canticles whenever they start. They like to give us some issue to chew on for the entirety of it. Just like when we first got into hell, into the inferno, we ran into the issue of limbo and how we felt about the unbaptized babies being down there and how we felt about those who existed before Christianity being down there. Well, here in the sort of pre-purgatory sandy beach area, which is very similar, say, to like a desert area, which is flat and full of dirt and disorienting, we find this, this Roman statesman who committed suicide after his side of the war lost. And so the first question we ask is, well, what is the first question that we want to ask? Why is this man in purgatory and not in hell amongst the suicides in circle seven, subcircle two, amongst those who are violent against self? And so Dante seems to have two reasons for this. The first one is this. The four lights on his face that seem to come from the sun, you might interpret symbolically as the four great excellencies of man that had been bequeathed to him by a divine illuminating essence in the sky, um, which you might consider a figure of consciousness or of God. And so the four lights on his face indicate what are called the cardinal virtues because they orient you in the world, like the cardinal directions, or the practical virtues or the moral virtues. And we are going to need to know them, and especially for tomorrow. They are 
fortitude. That means bravery. It comes from the Latin word forte, which means strong, which is why, where is it? What is it that we put on uh, major defensive points as military uh, uh, operatives? What is it that we create, say, along a, the, a branching river? What? Yes, Cop? A fort, yes, and forts are strongholds. Literally, they are strongholds. It's tough not to say your name. Yeah, and uh, so fortitude means bravery. Prudence, which uh, shares a cognate or is cognate with providence, means wisdom or practical wisdom. You are prudent if you know how to act in a specific situation. So if you're taking notes right now, being quiet, being attentive, you're being very prudent. If you're on the volleyball court like W back there, Maybe that's how I'll refer to you. Uh, and you're, you know, you're slamming a ball into your opponent's face after spiking it on them because they shouldn't have been near the net against you. Well, then you're being pretty prudent. Yes, justice. We all care about that. Justice is defined very simply here as fairness. You've got to be fair to other people. That's a big, helpful thing in your life. And perhaps you have never thought about that. But here's something I will say to you. You probably don't think it's that great a virtue to be fair but you do probably think it is a terrible vice when somebody is unfair to you. It's something you immediately notice, right? If, say, I'm coming up to A here, and I'm like, I have $4. Let's distribute them evenly. You get one, I get three. How do you feel about that? Unfair? Pretty unfair, of course. Of course, of course. And then, of course, the last virtue is temperance. That means moderation. That means Nothing too much, nothing too little, not too extreme, not too, uh, uh, not too deficient. It's very much like, uh, what is there a story that you learn when you're a kid? You're like going through the woods and then you find some house and you just roll into that house because you're a kid. And then, you know, there's some beds and some, one's too big, one's too small. And then there's some porridge, some's too hot, some's too cold, yes. Goldilocks and the Three Bears, that's essentially a folktale that is attempting to teach you the the value, the virtue of temperance or moderation. Yes, to be able to modulate yourself. And well, if you think about that, that is a high virtue because who generally moderates you right now? Is it you or is it your teachers, coaches, and parents mostly at this point in your existences? Is it the laws at this point in the, your existence? Would you be an even more powerful and potentially successful individual if you were the one who regulated yourself solely. Very interesting question. And so, this Cato guy seems to have had these four virtues to an utmost extent. And so, I suppose the claim here is the more virtue you have, the more virtuous you are, the less animal-like you are or sinful, and the more, well, divine you are. He is reflective of both the sun and stars, well, the sun and stars are celestial objects that give light to the night sky. And so he is not only someone who embodies these virtues, but he is someone who to those around him represents them as well, which I do think is a very uh, interesting claim made by Dante because we know from contemporary neuroscience that humans are highly imitative. So in fact, the best way to get people to do something is not to say something to them, but to do what? So that they will imitate it. Be an example. Embody it. Do it yourself. Walk the walk if you want people to talk the talk. Very good. And so it looks like Dante is sneaking a very interesting theological consideration into this. And so a question you might well have asked about purgatory is, once you get into purgatory, you do go to heaven. 
You have to put in a lot of work, but you're going to get there so long as you don't turn back. Okay, okay. So a big theological question asked by scholars often is, how does one get to heaven? By having faith or by doing good acts? Well, Dante's claim through Cato here appears to be both. That you represent what your faith is through how you act. And so you can see who a person is by the effects of their actions. You know the plant by the flower that comes from it. And I think that that is largely true. I would much, uh, you know, they say in jujitsu circles, and also Shakira says, the hips don't lie, right? And in fact, if you're an ultimate Frisbee defender, you watch the hips of the person rather than their face, which is what you naturally orient on as a social creature. And so it's very interesting to what extent one's words and one's actions are even aligned. I would highly recommend look for the actions of people if you want to understand who they actually are. All right, so how is this guy like Minos? Well, he's the first judge you find down here in Purgatory. And just as Minos was a judge, so is this man a judge. One interesting thing I'll note that is different is that what was, what was something unique, odd, weird about Minos? Not exactly a human at this point, even though he is the ancient king of Crete, progeny of Zeus, yes? He had a serpent's tail, right, indicating that he, like Gerion, is a representative of that which is human, but also that which is predatory in man. Hmm, hmm. Well, this, this character, this Cato, he doesn't have that half snake. And so he doesn't snake downwards. And so he doesn't have that snake aspect that indicates the snake or reptilian aspect of man that is being punished in the inferno. Which means, is this going to be a place of punishment or humanity? Is this a, a serpentile den or a, a, a den of serpents? or a place where the best in man gets brought to bear. The best in man. And so, but, 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 in order to bring the best out of man, man has to work, has to suffer, has to become something, has to expiate or expunge or expurgate himself of that which draws him down. And so the process of purgatory that Cato apparently represents in some way will be that by which you get rid of the hindrances in your life that keep you from that which you wish to achieve. How you get rid of the snakes within yourself, as it were. Very interesting. Oh, yes, and you should know this. Marsha was his wife. I will talk about this a little bit more. All right, so we talked about the four stars. You don't need to write this. I'm just going to recap it really quickly just so you hear it. Remember, the four stars on his face are the four cardinal or moral virtues. They are temperance, which means moderation, modulating yourself. Justice, fairness, being fair to others. Prudence, practical wisdom, knowing what to do in specific situations. And fortitude, bravery. At the bottom of, ah yes, ah yes, ah yes. This is just a question to think about. This would be a good question to talk about in seminar next week. At the bottom of purgatory is a man who sacrificed himself for the state, Cato. At the top of purgatory will be a man who sacrificed himself for humanity, Jesus. Is each sacrifice worthy? Is one worthier? And what is Dante trying to say? There does seem to be a parallel between this Cato man, who's secular, who's a figure of the state, and this Jesus figure that we'll find in earthly paradise, who is a figure of uh, religious or sacred 
authority. Ah, yes, and one additional thing I did not say about Cato. So, why did his suicide not land him in hell? Well, A, the four cardinal virtues he seemed to embody to a tremendous extent, so he was very good in his acts. But how did he show faith, and what did he show faith to? Well, he showed faith to an ideal, and his ideal was this. I will not live unfree in a tyranny. I will not live unfree in an empire. And you can actually see that the assassin of Abraham Lincoln was clearly thinking uh, along the same lines as Cato when he killed Abraham Lincoln and then jumped on the theater stage. And does anybody know what he very famously said in Latin? Sick, simper, tyrannous. Thus, always to tyrants. John Wilkes Booth believed that Abraham Lincoln was being a tyrant and so killed him. Very similar to how Julius Caesar eventually dies. But Cato, Cato apparently believed so much in a republican democracy that he refused to live in an empire. And so after Pompey lost to Caesar, Cato took his own life, which means that he didn't simply take his life due to some sort of self deception or some incapacity to deal with the problems of life, but because he made a rational decision. And his rational decision was he was made for a Republican world. It was now going to become an empire. And he was not going to be a part of that world. We'll have to decide for ourselves whether we buy that, whether we think he deserves to be in purgatory or not, whether we think dying for an ideal is different from simple suicide. It's uh, I'd say a very difficult question. All right, and then here's the final command of Cato after we first talked to him. He's a very stern figure, and he's going to show back up when we're having fun and trying to sing, sing around, and he's going to say, you, you kids need to stop wasting time on your iPods and get up this mountain. He's very much like, get off my lawn, old man. Well, he has us wash our face off. He has the pilgrim go wash his face off, and that has a deep symbolic meaning. A... Washing your head is a religious ritual. Which religious ritual involves sticking your head in some water and thus uh, mimicking the effects of a drowning and washing away your past or the errors of your past? Yes. Baptism. Baptism. Very good. And so it's like a baptism. And so we now understand where is it that Dante has been that has so marred his face? Yes. The Inferno. Hell, he's been dealing with his own personal and object and humanity's past, which is sort of like what you do with history, right? You look at all these terrible things and some good things that humans have done, and then you sort of apply it to yourself, and you're like, am I the sort of creature that could have done all the terrible things I've ever learned? It's like, well, yes, because how different are you from any human that's ever existed? Two hands, two feet, same brain, you're very similar. So you can do the same things. And so, well, what will differentiate you, or at least according to Dante, will be your choices. Will be your choices, not simply your physiology. And so what Dante first has to do in, in order to ascend the mountain is to wash away his past, to wash himself clean, to give himself a clean slate. And this is interesting because this too will be paralleled at the top of the Purgatorio. It will be paralleled by dipping his head in the river Lethe, which will actually make him forget his past, and into a new river that you've never heard of because Dante made it up called the Unoe, which means good mind. It will be 
remembrances of a good past. It's sort of like Patronus juice, if you've ever read the Harry Potters. Has anybody read the Harry Potters and you know about the Patronus? And you say, expecto Patronum, and you shoot out a, a beam, or not a beam, but a figure of white light that takes specific form if you're very powerful. And how is it, how is it why that you, you summon a Patronus? You have to hold something in your mind. What is it? A very special happy memory. And that's very interesting because Dante will mention that too. Apparently part of what gets one to heaven at the very top of purgatory is giving up all one's bad memories and focusing on one's best memories. And I think that's very interesting. Something interesting that contemporary therapy tells us is that making lists of things you're grateful for will actually make you happier. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Because if you're in a depressed or a mad or sad state, what are you going to be thinking about? What sort of music are you going to be listening to? How's your posture going to look? What sort of, what color clothing are you going to be more likely to wear? You're going to think thoughts that keep you or make you less sad when you're sad or angry. They keep you sad or they keep you angry. Have you ever had somebody say a funny joke to you when you were sad or angry and you got upset with them because they made you laugh? That's sort of funny because you want to stay what? You want to stay sad. Or you want to stay mad. Well, perhaps making a good list would help because then you would have a more balanced idea of the world. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. All right, the four cardinal virtues, we've seen them. Let's talk about Canto to the Angel and Casella, and I've got to speed up a little bit. All right, good. So like Charon in the Inferno, an angel carries the souls across the ocean to purgatory. So just as there was Charon with his fiery eyes, with his, his boat, uh, which is a correlate to what we saw in the Aeneid last year, uh, we have an angel now leading these spirits behind him across the ocean to this new shore. And this seems to be opposite from Charon. Rather than a bad experience, because you know, you're going to the place of sorrow, to the place of eternal damnation, abandon all hope, Ye who enter, well, no, 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 not, not here, not in the purgatorio. Now we're singing. And in fact, we're singing, In Exitu Israel de Egypto, which is a quote from Exodus, the Vulgate translation of Exodus into Latin, um, uh, of what the Jewish people say after they leave Egypt. And so let's think about what that means. Egypt, tyranny, has enslaved you. That's life. You've been enslaved to the passions and the restrictions of life. And now you leave this restrictive life, this body that you had, and you're free. Interestingly enough, just as the Jewish people, after leaving Egypt, were free to be in a disorienting desert where poisonous snakes attacked them, and idolatry did as well, so their minds and their physical location attacked them. And if you think about how scary a desert is, I, I think you should think about how scary a desert is. You don't know where it's backward, Where's forward? What's left? What's right? There are terrifying creatures like giant spiders and scorpions and snakes and possibly hyenas, depending on where it is you are, which I've heard horrifying ideas about female hyenas. You know they actually have more testosterone than the male hyenas, which makes their anatomy more male-like, which makes childbearing very tough for them. And so hyenas are very nasty creatures, even physiologically speaking, not to mention that horrible laugh that they have and that nobody likes them because, you know, we've all seen The Lion King, and so hyenas are basically Nazis, and we don't like that. All right. <laughs> so, in Exodus Israel de Egypto, these souls have escaped a place of oppression, 
a place of tyranny. And that seems to be life. Now they get to go to a more celestial place if they can put the work in. After they leave the desert of the beach of the Purgatorio, they will ascend the seven cornices of Purgatory. And as I said to you earlier, unlike in the Inferno where you have a specific punishment and you stay there, in the Purgatorio, you work all the way up. You go from the first cornice, pride, all the way to lust, and you work it out, work it out, work it out, depending on what sort of person you were. All right, good, 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 good. So we now have our very first encounter. We meet a good friend of Dante's who was also a singer, supposedly, or rather, Dante's a poet, this man's a singer. They're both artists to some extent. And his name is Casella. And in fact, very interestingly, Dante tries to hug him three times, but finds that he can't because he has no body. Who does this remind us of from the Odyssey? Yes. Um, Odysseus and Anticlea. Odysseus and Anticlea, his mother. Who does this remind us of? There are two people in the Aeneid. Yes. Aeneas and his wife, Creusa, after book two, or at the end of book two, when sadly she dies, makes me tear up just thinking about that sort of thing. Who else? He tried to hug someone else. It makes perfect sense. Is in book six, in the underworld. Yes? His father. His father. He tries to hug him as well. But can you hug a memory? No. That's why it's not so fun to try and live in the past. Anybody love you in the past? Anybody from the past love you now, I suppose you might say. Do your memories actively love you? No. No, no but you might love them, but that's a one-way street. Good, 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 good. Okay, Dante then asked Casella to sing for him again. Like with Marsha, looking to the past. Oh, and one thing, I don't know if I have a slide dedicated to this, but I should say this to you. Virgil and Cato have a little talk, and Virgil makes the comment that he actually lives in limbo where Cato's dead wife is. So Cato's wife is in hell, whereas he's in purgatory. And here's something sad, or at least sad to us. Will they ever see each other? No, never, not going to happen. And yet, Cato doesn't seem to be very bothered by this. And so he's trying to teach us something about what makes you successful in purgatory. If he is not sad about the fact that he will never see his wife, because they are no longer living and the relationship is no longer active, what is Dante telling us that we need to do with the past in order to make it up purgatory? Even the saddest facts from the past, like you'll never see your wife again. Yes. You gotta forget the past. You have to move past it. That's right, you move past it. Exactly so, exactly so. That even the fact that his wife is eternally damned does not affect Cato. We might, you know, I think it's a very powerful point. We might think that it's a bit callous. We'll certainly talk about it in seminar, whether we think that that's appropriate or not, because it does sort of make our hair stand on end, right? Does anybody think that they would actually act like Cato in this instance, or that they might be a little bit sad? Uh, it's a little inhuman. It's a little inhuman. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, while Casella, so, and this is further emphasized by this fact. Dante says this to Casella. He says, sing that song that we used to like to listen to. He's, he's trying to invoke, what is that feeling? There's a very specific word for it. It's sort of a hard word for a feeling of pain about the past. When you're indulging in the past, you're indulging in which word? Yes. Nostalgia. Very good. It actually comes from the Greek word nostos, which means homecoming. And so it's like you're trying to return to a time before. Like you're trying to return home. And so 
Dante is trying to indulge in nostalgia. He's like, let's remember the good times, Casella. And then, poof, Cato appears. And he says, you need to get up the mountain right now, you little waste of time ragamuffins. I wish that the recording could see what I just did there. Something lost in translation. But, um, yes, so what does that mean? Why does, why does Cato not allow them to indulge in the past? Well, what's the point of being in purgatory? To live in the past and indulge in what's there? Or to move forward towards the future and make better things happen? Or to improve your existence? And so a question you might ask is this. If you are sitting in the past indulging in nostalgia and how good things were, what are you not doing? Yes? Moving forward. Making things better in the present and therefore future. That's right. You're missing your shot. You're missing your opportunity when you live in the past. And so, well, I suppose the present is the best place to be. All right, Canto 3, let's talk about Manfred. Manfred's going to really test us, I think. He, well, he is amongst the class of sinners that we run into in anti-purgatory who are late repentant. You need to know this idea. Late repentant means he did not repent of his sin until the end of his life, which means... <coughs> He must remain in anti-purgatory, the place before the place of struggle, until he has passed the term of his entire life. So if he, say, lived 80 years, which he didn't, and then it took him 80 years to repent, he had spent 80 years chilling out on the sand, doing nothing. Sounds like a real waste of time. Yes. Good thing he is before where time really matters. And so something about this guy. I'm just going to tell you what he did to repent. And then I'm going to tell you what he did during his life. And then you can tell me whether you think this purgatory place is fair. You remember how Francesca got thrown into hell just for sort of hooking up with her, just for, hooking up with her husband's brother? Not exactly a cool thing to do, but probably not as big a deal as this. Manfred murdered his father, his half-brother, his two nephews, and then tried to assassinate the heir to the throne, his nephew, Conradin. Father, half-brother, two nephews, and another nephew you tried to get. <coughs> so we would call him a what? A murderer, right. A patricide, a fratricide. I'm, I, I'm not even sure what you would call murder of nephew, like a nephricide or something <laughs> like that. And... Uh, um, uh, uh, or what is it, Nepo nepotism, like maybe a nepocide, something like that. Well, not only that, even the people in the church hated him. He got excommunicated not once, but twice. Once by Pope Alexander IV in 1258, and another time by Pope Urban IV, and something we'll see in the next slide is actually when you get excommunicated, you have to wait three times three times the amount of time you were excommunicated for before you go into purgatory. So if you were excommunicated for 30 years, you wait 90 years at the bottom of purgatory to get started. Um, so, his rap sheet. Not exactly a good dude. Murderer. Murderer of family. We, sh we think he should beware as a murderer, potentially betrayer of family. Yes? Mm -hmm. Not only just in the Inferno, how deep in the Inferno, yes? Then circle nine, Cana, right. This is what got him out of hell. He spoke the word Mary as he died. 
How late did he wait to repent? As late as you can possibly wait. And did he still make it to purgatory? Yes. Okay, so two things we learned there. And because all of us, our little injustice sensors are going, bleep, bleep, bleep. we do not care for this. We're like, uh, what? A, because how the because of the structure of the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso, we know this. It was not a false repentance. It's not like he tricked the system. It's not like he was like, I'm going to live a terrible life, and then I'm going to be like, Mary, at the end. And then he's like, yeah, suckers, I got up here. No, it seems like even if you wait until the last moment of your life, if you recognize the terrible things you have done and endure that experience, then you serve as a good example in some way to those around you. You have something redeeming about you. And apparently, as a human, at least the idea Dante comes here is that if you have anything redeeming about yourself, and the thing that does redeem you is your capacity to recognize your own flaws and evil things you have done, which is what teachers are always looking for when we say, do you know what you did, young Missy? We're looking for that recognition, right? Just like Virgil who was looking at Dante's face while he was watching the fight between Master Adam and Sinon. And remember, Dante became so embarrassed and ashamed of himself, and then Virgil said, that's exactly what I was looking for. It wasn't any of your words. It was your face, the recognition of sin. And well, apparently no matter how many terrible things you've done, though this sort of disagrees with the idea of Antonora, where your soul is immediately replaced by a demon, you can still make it to purgatory if you just recognize what you've done. But, I would add as a corollary, does that make you think that recognizing the evil things you have done is easy? Or potentially the hardest thing a human can do? Potentially the hardest thing a human can do. Because then you have to recognize that you have what in yourself? That nobody wants in themselves. Evil. Evil, that's right. That you got the snake isn't just on the tree but that the snake is on the tree that is you. Which you might imagine is the sort of conscious intellect which is capable of evil that is built out of your spinal cord or nervous system. Which is interesting. All right. All right, all right, all right. Okay, just know this. Just as I said, excommunication and purgatory. This is something you'll need to know for tomorrow. The excommunicates, Manfred informs Dante, must wait an anti-purgatory 30 times the length of their period of excommunication. Okay, so excuse me, actually I did some bad math earlier. I said uh, 30 times 3, it would actually be 30 times 30, so 900 years. If you're excommunicated for 30 years during your life, well, what's 30 times 30? It's not 90 like I had said, it's 900. And that's quite a bit of time. In fact, we'll see that some of the sinners in purgatory spent quite a bit of time suffering. Statius will spend something like 500 years amongst... Um, one group, the slothful, I think, and then 400 years with the prodigal. It might be reversed. It's reversed, I think. All right. Next concept you need to know. Prayers. I thought a lot about this, and it's weird. Apparently, when the living pray for you when you're in purgatory, that speeds you up the purgatorio. And often students think, that's pretty unfair. And so that makes me think, hmm, well, what does it mean, prayer? Apparently, if somebody prays for you, that means they love you. And if somebody loves you, that is indication of the greatest justice in the world. Because what is a greater, what, 
What is a greater indication of your value to the world than the fact that someone loves you? All right. Thank you very much.